For another take on key advances in management of malignant glioma, I met with Dr. Michael Gruber, who began by reviewing the evolution of temozolomide as part of the initial treatment strategy. Temozolomide was developed, tested in a number of institutions, and then it had a phase three study where they compared the traditional treatment versus temodor and radiation, and that proved to be significantly superior, improving the median survival from 10 months to 15 months and tripling the two-year survival from 7% to 27%. So that was significant, very well tolerated by most patients. It was a real breakthrough in treating these people. Interestingly, even if people take the drug and develop some resistance and evidence of recurrence, if you go back to it again, in about 75% of cases, they respond again. So it's a great drug, probably the best chemotherapy agent we've had. More recently, I'd say in the last two and a half years, bevacitamib has resulted in a significant improvement in outcome, particularly in patients with recurrent disease. There's an issue as to whether you can use that drug as a single agent or whether it should be combined with chemotherapy. We actually did a study, which is going to be published in the Journal of Neurosurgery, where we found that it didn't matter which chemotherapy drug you combined it with, the outcome was the same. And there was a study by Dr. Klausi at UCLA that indicates that his results comparing one arm of Avacin only versus the second arm of Avacin plus arinotecan had identical outcomes. But Avacin is clearly a major plus. It sort of follows on the work of Dr. Judah Falkman, who was the father of anti-angiogenesis or angiogenesis. We actually did a study at NYU 10, 12 years ago using thalidomide, which is one of the earlier anti-angiogenic agents. But this is far superior to thalidomide, much safer and that we're excited about it. Now, one of the problems with the Vastin is that you can control the tumor sort of in the middle of the tumor, but you promote invasiveness at the edge of the tumor. So what we're finding is a very unusual form of recurrence in about a third of the patients where they have multiple tumors not adjacent to the original site, which was usually where the tumor would come back. And we believe that's due to the invasiveness of the tumor. We're actually contemplating a protocol where we're going to add a drug called lithium to the mix, lithium being a GSK inhibitor and has been shown to have some preliminary benefit in patients with Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. So it's a bipolar drug. It's been around for 50 years. It's safe. We can measure levels, blood levels, so we know we're not overdosing and prevent any significant side effects. And we hope that that'll in addition to the other regimen of Avacid and Arinotecan, improve survival by reducing the invasiveness nature of the tumor. I've never heard of lithium being studied in cancer. Well, it's been studied in the lab. There isn't much in the way of human studies. We actually are going to have a study where NYU and the Ohio State University are collaborating to look into this, and we're hoping to open that protocol up in January. This thing about the BEV having an impact inside and not on the edge. Can you talk more about how that was determined? That sounds really interesting. Well, if you look at the typical tumor recurrence, which usually occurs within the margin of the resection site, if it's a patient who's had a gross settle resection, 80-85% of patients with a glioblastoma will recur within you know one centimeter of that resection site, whereas patients given Avastin, it seems to promote invasiveness, so you're seeing these cells which are mobile and can spread through the brain. And everywhere we've seen patients who have cerebellar metastasis. We've seen patients who may have a right frontal lobe lesion, develop a left parietal lobe lesion. So this is sort of metastasis within the brain? 
Correct. Has that been seen before? We do see it. We actually saw it in patients who had radio surgery. The patient would have surgery, have a conventional radiation course of 60 gray, roughly. And then if there was anything left over, they would zap it with a laser type of radiosurgical procedure. And lo and behold, the pattern of recurrence changed. So instead of 85% recurring at the resection margin, only 40% did. And we saw distant metastasis in that setting as well. So clearly, the reason you die from a glioblastoma is it's an invasive tumor. And we've known that for probably 70 years. Even Dr. Busey, who used to operate at the University of Chicago 50 years ago, would do hemispherectomies and find that a year later there was tumor in the residual brain. So these tumors are clearly mobile. They can move. And we think that the avastin possibly, just like the radiosurgery, possibly could be the reason for it where it promotes invasiveness. What is the path that it moves through? Through the white matter, which is really like a soup and they're like little paramecii, and they can travel along and move around. Hmm. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know about bevacizumab and glioblastoma, both in terms of efficacy as well as side effects and toxicity? Sure. Well, the efficacy is that in most of the studies, if you look at the studies from Duke, NYU, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, just to name three, I think we've all seen about a 60% objective response rate. In brain tumors, that's either a complete response, a partial response, which is more than a 50% reduction in tumor or stable disease. We do use stable disease as a marker. So it's an impressive number of patients and a lot of people with partial and complete responses. The side effects are essentially promotion of clotting, DVT, pulmonary emboli. Some people have reported stroke. Patients who have malignant gliomas have a hypercoagulable state, and 40% of those patients will develop a coagulation problem in their lifetime, whether it be a DBT, PE, or whatever. So it's common. We've had patients where we have had a clinical and radiological diagnosis of a pulmonary embolus. We then ultrasound do Dopplers of the legs and the arms and cannot find a source for the emboli, and we have to attribute that then to the vastin. So I think it probably adds about 10 to 15% greater risk of thrombotic issues. What about hypertension? During the infusion, one can see elevation of blood pressure. We've seen systolic pressures spike to 200, 210. If they spike significantly and they don't respond to Ativan or something like that, we just stop the treatment. And we find that the best antihypertensive agents for this would be an ACE inhibitor. What about proteinuria? Very seldom seen. We do a urinalysis every two weeks, but a significant proteinuria has not been an issue. Dr. Vrandenberg, I interviewed him for this series and talked to me about fatigue that he saw in these patients. And the thing that was kind of strange was that he thought it occurred more in people who were responding. Have you seen anything like that? Yeah, I think he's right about that because we don't see it initially. Our plan is to give a minimum of 12 treatments two weeks apart. And the first eight treatments, they go through pretty well with no significant problem. But by the time they get into the third, fourth treatment cycle, they do exhibit fatigue. But that means that they've gotten through eight prior treatments. They're already four months into their illness. And these are generally people at recurrence, which is pretty good, four months into their illness. So, yeah, I would agree with him. It's a late complication and it can be profound. He actually speculated maybe it might be a cytokine mechanism. Any thoughts about that? Because, again, he thought maybe it was happening more in the people who were doing well. 
Well, I would agree because we do see this in people who have had prolonged treatment. There are some centers where they don't stop. At Duke, they continue on until the patient recurs. There are people who have been on Vastin for more than a year. We generally stop after 12 treatments. What are some of the clinical trials that are being implemented right now to further study bevacizumab? Well, we have a trial for newly diagnosed malignant gliomas where the patients will receive concomitant radiation and temidar after surgery. We start the Avacin four weeks after the surgical procedure and continue on an every two-week basis until their first MRI, which is about a month after the last radiation treatment. They then have an MRI. If everything's looking at clinically an MRI stable, we give them a regimen of Temidar, 150 milligrams per meter squared daily for seven days, and Avacin 10 milligrams per kilogram on day 8, 22. And we start the lithium as well, 300 milligrams BID. And we continue that for six months, and then we stop the Avacin and do six more months of Temidar. So that's our current upfront protocol. What kinds of problems, if any, do patients get into with the lithium? Well, we haven't treated that many so far. I think we've had four so far, so it's not in a study. It's anecdotal. They went through it fine. We're trying to keep the lithium level between 0.8 and 1.2. Nobody's been above the 1.2 level, so so far so good. But we've only been doing this for a short time. At recurrence, the issue is should you just give them a Vastin alone or should you give them a Vastin with chemotherapy? I still think that chemotherapy has a role. And we're using carboplatinum in combination with Avacin, and we're also continuing with the urinotecan and the Avacin. What are some of the other agents and strategies that are being looked at right now in gliomas? Well, I'll tell you what we're doing with some people. Elderly folks, patients who have multiple lesions, we're accelerating the radiation. We're doing radiation over 15 fractions as opposed to 30, using it per dose of about 265 rads, sonograde, and using it with Temidar. And we're finding that to be very well tolerated, and we've seen some remarkable, this is anecdotal, we only have about four or five cases, but amazing reduction in tumor volume. In fact, I saw a patient yesterday who's a calculus teacher in high school, a 45-year-old woman who had six lesions, and her scan after maybe six weeks after her last radiation treatment shows two lesions have disappeared completely, and the other three are down by about 50% in volume. So it's rather remarkable. So that's something we're trying to tailor for a group of people who are elderly that couldn't tolerate seven weeks of therapy. It's difficult practically to get them to the radiation center and people with multiple disease. Only 3% of patients with glioma should have multifocal disease, but we're getting a run of them for some reason. Any other strategies that are being looked at you think are promising? Well, there's a whole bunch of targeted agents that are being looked at. I think there's been a fair amount of investigation of using a rapamycin-based trial, which unfortunately is very toxic and it hasn't shown much benefit. There are anti-invasive drugs that they're looking at that are, I mean, most of the things that have been reported to date in targeted therapy has been limited. But the other area that we're interested in is vaccine therapy. And we're actually working with UCLA and a few other institutions using a vaccine trial that's a personal vaccine made from the patient's tumor and their own white blood cells. So at surgery, if they have a grade 4 astrocytoma, have no other serious illnesses, no prior cancer, no prior immunological problems, we take the tumor tissue, we then do a leukophoresis and obtain their dendritic white blood cells, mix them up, do some stimulation of that group of drugs, 
cytokines, and then in about six weeks we can begin the vaccine treatment. While we're waiting to make the vaccine, they go forward with their traditional Temidar radiation. So they're getting the standard of care plus vaccine. We've been treating people with this for about a year now. We've actually treated 19 patients to date. Two have progressed. Our longest live patients one year from the time of the first vaccine. So it's too early to tell you. But the UCLA experience doing the phase one study was rather impressive. They did 19 patients, and they have two that are five years out, and their median survival is 36 months. Does this vaccine cross the blood-brain barrier? Yes. Hmm. What about the gliadol wafer? Can you explain what it is? Yeah, it's a wafer impregnated with a chemotherapy drug called BCNU, which is the drug that had been the standard of care drug for maybe 30-some years. And there's never been a single study that indicates that it's effective. So even the large studies done at the National Cancer Institute back in the 70s by Mike Walker never proved a benefit. So here's the problem. So you get this impregnated wafer after your operation. There's a 15% complication rate, infection, seizures, stroke, which requires a reoperation to remove the wafers. The patient could be on antibiotics, IV antibiotics for 8 to 12 weeks. And the benefit shown in their study which was a study comparing an impregnated wafer with an empty wafer, showed a benefit of two weeks in survival. So I didn't feel that for two weeks the patients should subject themselves to the serious adverse events that we see. And frankly, using a drug that has never been proven to be of value doesn't seem to make sense. And lastly, if they really wanted to prove the benefit of the wafer, there should have been a two-arm study comparing the wafer with intravenous BCNU and C how that measured up. What about the issue of metastatic disease to the brain? Anything going on there that, you know, is exciting? I think the hardest thing is to get medical oncologists to be more aggressive because I think once there's mets in the brain, most oncologists throw up their hands and say, what are we wasting our time for? The median survival is four or five months. Let's just palliate them. But there are subsets of patients that can do well. So if they have a solitary metastasis, I think they should certainly, if possible, have a resection of that tumor and then have radiation. And maybe the radiation should be more focal than generalized. Or we have a clinical trial we've just opened for non-small cell lung cancer patients using a combination, after surgery, using a combination of radiosurgery in combination with Tarceva and Temidar to see if we can prolong the patient's life and not have them lose their mental faculties. Because the big concern is dementia. Now, many of these people have impaired cognitive function before their operation. And that's never really been well done where they've had, you know, some kind of neuropsychiatric battery of tests before the operation, right after the operation, and maybe three months later to see if indeed you've improved the situation. But my general thought of being doing this for many years is that Whole brain radiation, particularly in people that are elderly, is devastating. And they're probably better off with focal treatment. In terms of what specifically? Dementia. What's the time course of that? I've seen it as early as two months. The standard treatment is 10 fractions of 30 gray each. And that's the equivalent to about 60 gray. And that really takes an elderly individual who's probably had some cerebral vascular disease that's unnoted and really have a problem. So... I like the idea, at least in solitary lesions or patients who have maybe two or three lesions, to do radiosurgery and then give Temidor and at least in the lung cancer patients. You can certainly modify the drugs used based on the primary source of the MET. But I think being more aggressive, 
probably buys the patient some time. We have people we follow at NYU that are two, three years out who never would have been two or three years out if one took the attitude, 30 gray and 10 fractions and good luck. So I think it pays to be aggressive, provide the patient is cognitively, reasonably intact and systemically controlled. If they have widespread systemic disease, I don't think I'd be aggressive. The other tumor that we should talk about is CNS lymphoma, primary CNS lymphoma, which is a fortunately rare disease, but also a curable disease. The most common cancer seen in the immunocompromised patient, AIDS, transplant patients, but also seen in immunocompetent patients, particularly elder folks. And there again, we treat them with a methotrexate-based regimen. We use rituxan, which is a CD20 antibody. And we get very good results. But again, in the past, most of these folks would get chemotherapy up front and then get radiation. And they too would have a severe dementia. And the problem with that is they could live 10 more years. So we are pushing to try to cure these people or put them in remission just with chemotherapy and antibodies and avoid the radiation as a last-ditch effort. And I think those of us who have a fair number of patients have seen some significant benefit from that.